0: We've given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at LakeForest.org. Thanks. Holy cow! A whole chapter of Daniel. Can we get? They need an award or a round of applause. Tony, Chloe, yeah. If nothing else today, you got to hear all of Daniel 6 read aloud. Good morning, my name is Aaron. Uh, we are in a series on the book of Daniel. That's a book in the Old Testament, and uh, today is week three. Uh, let's see, week one we did, uh, well we did chapters kind of one and two, and then week two we did chapter three. You might wonder why are we skipping chapters four and five, and that's because next week we have a special guest coming. Uh, our, our dear, dear friend Brent Campbell is coming back to preach here at Westlake. And y'all, I mean, get ready for some real preaching, okay? Because Brent is, he is a treat you will not want to miss next week. Uh, you, will, you will not want to miss it. And uh, if, even if you can't be here, at least tune into the podcast. Brent's going to be covering chapters 4 and 5. Today, I'm tackling chapter 6, which sort of begs the question... Can't poor Daniel just get a break, right? Like how hard can it be for this poor guy? Well, before we get into this, I need to set us up with a little exercise. So we're going to do something called a word association. Do you remember word associations? That's where I say a word and then you say the first word that comes to mind. Now be careful depending on who you're sitting next to. Here we go. All right, so uh, peanut butter and? Okay, good, good. Um, eggs and? Bacon and? Bacon and bacon. Somebody over here had it right. Yes, that's right. Bacon and more bacon is actually the correct answer. All right, so that was a little warm. Now, now let's do the Bible version. Ready for the Bible version? All right, so uh, let's see. Adam and? Good. Joseph and? Mary. Or Dreamcoat. Uh, some of y'all did Dreamcoat. That's the other joke. Okay, yeah. Uh, Cain and? Cain and Abel. Good. Um, now here we go. Daniel and? The lion's den. Interesting. Why is this the story, of all the stories of Daniel, and there are many, there's a whole book's worth, why of all the stories is this the story that we associate with Daniel, more than any other? This one stands out. Something about this story of Daniel and the lion's. Now here's, here's the thing, um, I, I think many of us, even if we're not church folk, or maybe we're, we're not Bible people, you know, but we're brand new, kind of this whole Christian thing, we're exploring it, we're checking it out. Even if you've never set foot in a church, never held a Bible, you have probably heard the story of Daniel in the lions' den, haven't you? You've heard it somewhere. You know something about it. Now, here's the thing: for those of you who have grown up in the church or would identify as a Christian, there's a there's a risk that's inherent in this. We can think that we already know what this story is about, right? We can think, "Oh my word, I was done with this story by the tenth time I heard it in second grade, right? This is I'm done." But but here's the thing: what if what if there's more to this story than we've actually seen before. I was thinking about how some ways that we get this wrong, and one of my favorite things to do is take Bible stories and see how they are presented in children's books, because they often get it wrong. So, so take a look at this. this is, these are some of the children's books on Amazon listed right now. Daniel and the Lions. I mean, the only thing that's going to happen to him there is he might get licked to death or something. right? I mean, just... <laughs> They kind of look like camels more than lions to me. I don't know. All right, so how about this one? This one's great too. Uh, this one, the, the lion looks more scared than Daniel does, doesn't he? This, this is the lion in Daniel's den, uh, wrestling match, yeah, WWF. So uh, how about this one? This is a good one too. Uh, yes, you too can have a cute pet lion just like Daniel, right? Uh, or, or this third one, uh, just in case you want to, or fourth one, sorry, just in case you want to carry your... Your lion with you wherever you go. little handle. I actually had a, a friend when we were young, we had uh, little kids, gave us this book, and it had a, a little lion puppet that you could put your hand in inside the book. Have you ever seen this? And every time you turn the page, the child could pet the lion. Talk about missing the point of the story. These are not pettable lions, right? We, we're just, what are we doing here? What, it's, it's all too easy for us to miss the point. So, what is the point uh, of Daniel's story? Well, today, I want to suggest to you that as important as the lions are, and as important as facing our fears are, I think there's a deeper thread going on in this story. Something that I want to call today a fourth quarter kind of faith. A fourth quarter kind of faith. Daniel's in the fourth quarter of his life, and we're going to see what a fourth quarter kind of faith, a faith that lasts, a faith that endures, a faith that goes a distance. What does a fourth quarter faith look like? I think there's something for us to learn from Daniel in that. Now, if you are just joining us in this series, don't worry. Let me catch up to speed real quick. Uh, Daniel was a Jewish boy born in Jerusalem at the age of 16. He is, well, kidnapped. A foreign country invades Jerusalem, takes him back as a prisoner of war to live in Babylon. Daniel will spend the rest of his life living in this foreign land. And in spite of all the pressures around him, Daniel refuses to surrender his identity as a God worshiper. Daniel clings to his faith in spite of incredible resistance. Uh, Daniel is an ethnic minority in this town. Uh, The dominant language of the country around him was a second language for him. He had to learn it. Uh, Daniel was a stranger living in a foreign land, but God continued to be faithful to him. Instead of being crushed by his opponents, what we see time and time again is that Daniel was rescued by his God. And he rose, get this, he rose through the ranks of this nation, this empire, to one of the most influential positions in all of Babylon. Now, one of the things that we don't often realize when we look at this story of Daniel is just how much history takes place throughout his life. I mean, there is change that happens left and right. I already mentioned he's taken from his home when he's 16, but he works for an evil king, King Nebuchadnezzar. All right, y'all remember. He works for this king for the next 40 years. And then that king dies, and then it kind of goes into chaos mode. There are three kings who we don't really even hear their names in the scriptures because none of them actually stick longer than about 12 months. A lot of turnover. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, which I think is like one of the coolest Bible names I've ever heard. Belshazzam would be cooler, but Belshazzar is cool enough. Belshazzam uh, takes over. And that is what actually chapters 4 and 5 that Brent's going to talk about next week are all about. But where our story starts today, the nation of Babylon has fallen and another nation has risen up. Daniel gets another new boss. He's still living in the city of Babylon, but the Babylonians are out and the Persians are in. And that's where our story picks up. Got that? Now, here's here's what's really interesting to me. Daniel, by the time he reaches chapter 6, is actually... 83 years old. Does that kind of blow your mind? Because most of the children's Bibles that I read have about Daniel at about 12, right? I don't know, maybe 15. He's not shaving yet. He hasn't gone through puberty. I mean, he's just a little boy, right? Daniel, in the Bible, when he's thrown into the den, the lion's den, is 83 years old. He has served under two empires, seven different kings, and he's only got three years left to live. Let's pick up with verse 1. It pleased Darius, that's the seventh king, to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. He doesn't want to lose any money. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now what's going on here? Well, as we have seen each week in the series, the first few verses of each chapter are setting the stage. And we don't know much about Darius or Cyrus. Those are the two Persian kings. Uh, we don't know much about them, but what we do know is that they were very friendly to God's people. In fact, it's under the Persians that God's people are allowed to go from Babylon and return to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding the city and the temple. Well, Darius has come into power, And like all new bosses, especially your bosses, when they show up to the office, he decides that in order to prove his worth, he's got to, well, change everything about the org chart, right? Isn't that what new bosses do? They come in, they change everything. So we're told that there were 120 satraps. You might just think about these guys as senators. And then I had the best joke, but given what's going on in a political environment, I decided to not upset all of y'all. So I just leave that joke aside because I would upset people on both sides of the aisle. Insert Senator joke there. Here we go. Now, get this. There are three administrators over all of these guys, and Daniel is one of them. Then, Darius, who's brand new to the office, brand new, he hears about Daniel's good reputation. He hears about his character. He hears about all the stories of Daniel's faithfulness, and he decides, get this, he's brand new. He decides to make Daniel the prime minister. Is that crazy? Look at what happens next. Verse 4. At this, Daniel's promotion, right? Become prime minister. At this, the administrators, those are the other guys, and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Now pause here for a minute. You see, these guys are assuming that Daniel is one of them. Do you get this? They they know how they got to the positions they're in. They knew that there was a lot of well, some shady dealings, right? And they know about the kickbacks and all the other stuff that happens when you're in these kinds of circles. And they're assuming that they can find something like that in Daniel's life. Some kind of skeleton in the closet, some kind of dirt on the guy that they can throw him under the bus with. But as hard as they try, they can find nothing, nothing in the 60 plus years of government service, not one thing can they find on Daniel. There's not even a single compromising image from college on his Facebook page, right? There's nothing, there's nothing. Such was Daniel's integrity. So we're told in verse five, finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless unless it has something to do with the law of his God. In other words, Daniel's character is so above reproach, his integrity is so intact that the only way to get Daniel is to attack what is most precious to him, his faith. So they put him in a position, in a conundrum, where he's going to have to choose between honoring his God and honoring his king. In other words, a situation where Daniel, his faith, is going to require a kind of civil disobedience. So these administrators, they they start to make their plan, they start to plot. And we see this in the very next verse, in verse 6. Let me read this to you. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, King Darius, live forever. A little flattery there, right? The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god Or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So, King Darius, thinking they are all in agreement, though notice who's conspicuously absent, puts this decree in writing. You see what's happening here? The conflict is building. The boiling point is about to be reached. This is office politics at its best. Daniel gets a promotion, right? A, mind you, a promotion he did not ask for. He's simply doing his job. But the rest of his co-workers are starting to seethe with jealousy. So they go to the boss and they do what jealous coworkers do. They say, Darius, you're the best boss we've ever had. And we think that the entire month of October should be dedicated to you. We should just call it Darius month. And no one should be allowed to worship anybody other than you during that month. And because we know you're a tolerant king and you want everybody to be able to worship their own gods, they can go back to worshiping their gods after they worship you, mighty great King Darius, for 30 days. Sign it now, please. Oh, and by the way, if anyone violates this, we think they should get death by caged lions. Sounds like a good reality show, doesn't it? Death by Cage So here's the thing, right? When God raises you up, there will always, always be someone to tear you down. When God raises you up, there will always be someone who wants to tear you down. Now, what's the whole deal with these lions? This is kind of an interesting little turn of the story. I don't know why this was the method of execution that was chosen. I kind of I nerded out on this. There are tons of ink spilled over trying to answer this, and nobody knows why. But here, here's some interesting theories. Some people think that maybe the lions symbolized the other senators who kind of wanted to devour the guys. Do you see how that would work? And they were saying all these things about it, and God shuts their mouths. That's kind of cool, kind of nerdy. Another possibility is that Daniel, who's from the tribe of Judah the Lion of Judah, and there's about to be a big lion battle. That's kind of cool. Game of Thrones all over here. This is all okay. Or, Or maybe, and this is the one I think is probably true. Maybe it's just that the lions were easier to find than sharks with laser beams. I don't know. The point is this. Daniel's stuck. If he goes left, fail. If he goes right, fail. He's got nowhere to go. So what does he do? And he actually is acute because it's striking him at the thing that is most core and central to him it it is daniel's prayer fellowship with god that has enabled him to withstand all of the attacks of his opponents in babylon but now the very thing that has been his life source is the very thing that it is illegal to do do you feel his stuckness you feel the tension so what are Daniel's options at this? If if he has options, what are options? Well, I think the first option might be this. He he could just stop praying, right? He could just say, God, listen, I've been praying every day, 83 years. Can I just have a month break, you know? Can, can we, like, break up and then make up again later, 30 days later, you know, break up, make up? God, can we just kind of do, like, the spring break thing where I just kind of leave you at home for seven days while I go to Cancun? and then Can we do that kind of thing, God? That's that's one option, the makeup break up or sorry, the break up makeup option. But the second one's kind of, I, I actually think this is probably what I would be most prone towards. Uh, I call this the fake it option, you know, where you don't actually pray out loud, but you just pray silently, because then they can't know if you're praying. Like imagine you're just like you're sitting there and uh, you just decide, okay, I'm not going to pray out loud because then they won't be able to prove that I'm praying. I'll just pray silently. And so you're sitting there and like, hey Aaron, what are you doing over there? Nothing. Are you praying? No, no, not praying. Just sitting here silently thinking about the bears and the field goal. (laughs) Or the third option. Third option. He could just keep praying as he always had and let the chips fall where they may, even if it means risking his own death. Which is exactly what he does. Look with me at the very next verse. Verses 10 and 11 on which the entire chapter 6 hinges. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed. Giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So I want to pause here for a minute. We're going to get to the end of the story in just a minute. You've already heard it. You already know where the story ends, right? I want to pause here because this is the defining moment for Daniel. The moment on which the story hinges is not actually the lion's den. That's just the fallout. The moment on which it hinges is this moment right here when Daniel finds out that it is now illegal for him to do the very thing that is at the core of his life's source. What is it that enables Daniel to stand strong here? What is it that enables him to hold on to his faith? What is it that enables Daniel to hold on to faith even in the fourth quarter? That's what I want to unpack. So just quickly, two things I want to draw out from this. Two things we learned from Daniel. First is this, a so fourth quarter faith. A faith that lasts, a faith that endures, a faith that goes, a distance. A fourth quarter faith begins in prayer. See, our first response to trials, and look, we all face trials. Our first response to trials is usually what? Well, like panic, right? We kind of freak out. Oh, no, That's right? like when I get a flat tire. I mean, Boom. Oh, ah, like panic. But our first response to trials should never be panic. It should always be to pray. But I have to confess I am terrible at this. When a trial hits, I'm about as likely to pray as my first action as I am to read the instructions before trying to assemble the IKEA furniture. I'm only going to go to the instructions after three or four hours of utter anguish, nail-biting, frustration, and cursing. That's just how I go to the instructions at that point. And the sad thing is that I think the same thing happens when it comes to prayer. Our language betrays us all too often. We're like, we only go to prayer after everything else has failed. Right? Well, I don't know. I guess all we have left is prayer. <laughs> wow, man, we've tried every. I guess at this point, our only hope is prayer. As it, It's like a last resort. Do you feel Anybody feel me? Oh, this is me. This is just me. I, I'm embarrassed to admit that this is often how I approach it. But can you imagine? Just put yourself in God's sho- shoes for a minute. Imagine you know, you're like, oh, I don't know. I guess... All we can do is, is pray to God. Now God's up there like, yeah, man, you're, you're up a creek without a paddle if I'm your only hope, right? <laughs> He's just, can you imagine? Now look, I'm not suggesting that if you have a flat tire, you should just pray and not get the spare tire out. You need to do both. But what I'm saying is that when our faith is tried, and it will be, and it will be way worse than a flat tire, when our faith is tried, the most important thing Daniel says that we can do is pray. And that's exactly what Daniel does. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, the first thing he did was he went home and prayed. Now I need to say a word because we can miss this here. Daniel is not being showy in his prayer, right? The opening the windows to Jerusalem was not so that everybody could see him. It wasn't so that he could extend the selfie stick out and take a, an Instagram photo, hashtag I'm so spiritual. That's not what he's doing here, right? What he's doing is he's demonstrating the faithful kind of prayer that every faithful Jew in exile would have done. From a very young age, Daniel had been taught to pray three times daily. Each time he would face Jerusalem, remembering God's promise to restore his people in his temple. He would get down on his knees in a posture of surrender to God. And this was unusual. The various nations in the ancient world prayed, standing up with their palms open wide. Only the Hebrews, only the Jews, prayed on their knees as a habit. And then Daniel would pray the most important prayer that any Jew would pray in exile, the Shema. Listen, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And as the prayer continues, he would have rehearsed again the story of God's faithfulness, delivering his people from slavery in Egypt, even as he prayed and asked God to deliver his people from slavery in Babylon. He would have given thanks He would have asked for help. That's what Daniel did when he prayed. This Daniel had done every day of his life, his entire life, three times a day over 70 years, and it was not something he chose to do in order to violate the new law. It was his habit. It was his discipline. It was his identity. He would have had to chosen not to pray in order to not break this law. It would have required intentional effort because this is who, Daniel was. I was thinking about this prayer habit. And I was reminded of a conversation I had with a pastor from Asheville. Uh, I met him at a coffee shop in Black Mountain. We just struck up a conversation. And it was so interesting. We were talking about prayer. I forget how it came up. And he said, you know, Aaron, one of my favorite things as a pastor to do is to listen to people's prayers. And I said, what, what, why, why do you like to listen to prayers? He said, well, because you can tell what somebody believes by what they pray. He says, We pray what we believe. When the guys catch Daniel praying, what is he praying for? God's help. Why is he praying for God's help? Because he believes God will help him. What do your prayers suggest? About what you believe Fourth quarter faith begins in prayer That's the first thing I wanted us to see But I want the second thing uh, is a little bit unusual And I don't want you to miss this The second thing I think we learn about a fourth quarter faith from Daniel here Is that a fourth quarter faith is committed to finishing well Committed to finishing well What do I mean? When I was in ninth grade, I know this is hard to believe looking at me now, I, I was quite the football player. I played tight end. I don't think I caught a single pass, but boy, I sure knocked some guys on their backsides. It was a lot of fun. I, and I was tall and lanky and klutzy, so I just kind of threw my body in the general direction, and it usually turned into something good. So, uh, but I had a football coach in ninth grade. Uh, that was this really fiery man. He's one of the angriest men I'd ever met, but he inspired us so deeply and he would call us together in the locker room before every game. And he always said the same thing to us for every game. He said, gentlemen, I don't know why he called us gentlemen. We we're all, the uh, you know, 13, 14 year old boys, gentlemen, football games are won in the fourth quarter. And then we'd make us all stick our hands up in the air and hold up four fingers. any of you ever done this, football players? Come on. Anybody done that? No? This must have been a Texas thing. All right. So here you go. Here's what would happen. So we'd, we'd, ah, fourth quarter, football games were won. And then it dawned on me one day, you know, that's the only way football games are won, right? (laughs) You don't win a game at the third quarter. There's still another quarter to come. But anyway, so here was the idea. The whole point of this was that it didn't matter how well you played in first, second, or third quarter. The football game was won. In the fourth quarter. So every every game, you know, that season when the third quarter would end and the fourth quarter started, we'd all do the same. We'd take off our helmets, we'd all hold up four fingers. Football games are won in the fourth quarter. And we thought we were so cool, y'all. I mean, it was all yeah, you know, we thought we were so cool. Until we realized that every single other team in our league did the same thing. Right? Just kind of lame. So here's the funny thing about this: we uh we only won one game that season. Even though every game we held up four fingers, the football games are won in the fourth quarter, and it dawned on me it's still true. Football games are won in the fourth quarter, just not by us, right? There's other people won, but you get the point here, right? It doesn't matter how well the first three quarters go. The game is won in the fourth quarter. Now I've made a big deal today about the fact that Daniel is 83 when he's thrown into the lion's den. I've even tentatively titled this sermon, grandpa in the lion's den to accentuate this point. Grandpa on the lines. You see, Daniel is in his fourth quarter. Daniel's only got three years left in his life. And he has played an amazing first three quarters. No one would fault him for coming to the coach at this point saying, Hey, coach, you know, I'm tired. I'm feeling a little sore. Can I sit this quarter out? Can you put somebody else in for me? Nobody would think anything out of that. God's people are returning to Jerusalem. He's done a great job. I mean, doesn't Daniel deserve to just kick back a little bit? I mean, can't he just go get some Gatorade? I don't know, go golf and sip some iced tea. Can't he just chill for a little while? But you see, here's the surprising truth that we discover in Daniel's story, that Daniel's greatest contribution, his greatest work in God's kingdom, the thing we remember most about him came not in the first three quarters, but in the last quarter of his life. God was not done with Daniel and his greatest Contribution comes in the fourth quarter. And what if? What if the same is true of you? I had a professor in grad school named Bobby Clinton, and Bobby studied, uh, spent his whole life studying the lives of Christian leaders, men and women who had made a significant impact in this world for God's kingdom. And what he found was quite fascinating. He noticed that there was a common pattern in the life of all 400 plus of these Christian men and women leaders. Something that he later called the four seasons in the life of a disciple. Now hang with me on this. I think this is going to really serve you. Let me me tell you a little bit about Bobby's theory on this. Bobby noticed this pattern and it was true in every life. Uh, the uh, The first season in life he called sovereign foundations. This is the uh, places you were born, the families you grow up in. You don't have any say over this. This is just sovereign. God puts you there. And it really amounts to about the first 14, 15 years of your life. The second season of life is what he calls character formation. In our late teens and into our 20s, uh, this is the season where our character is shaped and formed. Who we are as a person is just beginning to be shaped and honed. The habits we live by, the values we have, the experiences of failure or loss or success mark us in deep and lasting ways. Then later in our 30s and 40s, we enter into the third season of life, what he calls ministry formation. This is a time when we begin to discover that we have some unique talents and gifts. And maybe just maybe God didn't give them just for us to use for ourselves, but to use in the lives of others. And then fourth and finally... If we make it, in our 50s, Bobby says, we reach the stage he called our ultimate contribution. You see, what's most surprising about Clinton's research was this fourth and final stage. Of the 400-plus leaders he studied, every single one of them made their greatest contribution after the age of 50. From Billy Graham to Mother Teresa to C.S. Lewis, the same pattern played out over and over and over again. God does his greatest work through his followers in the fourth quarter. Now here's why I think this matters today, and we're almost done with the nerdy lesson. Hang with me. Let me just speak to a few specific groups of you real quick. So let me let me first talk to the middle schoolers and high schoolers in kind of early 20s. Middle schoolers, high schoolers, early 20s, raise your hands. Come on, own it. Anyone here, middle schoolers, high schoolers? All right, I see a couple of y'all. All right, here we go. Here we go. One of the things that I hear most from our middle schoolers and high schoolers and our college students too is the intense pressure you have and you feel to have it all figured out. What am I supposed to do with my life? Who am I supposed to marry? What's my career supposed to be? Where am I supposed to live? And we're supposed to know all the answers to all of life's questions by the age 11. One recent study from the American Psychological Association found that students, get this, high school students now score higher on average for stress than most of their adult counterparts. Number one stress listed, you know, number one stress? College and career choices. Such as it is to be a high schooler in our world today. But middle schoolers, high schoolers, let me offer you this. I know the pressure's intense, I know you feel it. But if Daniel offers you any hope, it might just be this, that who you are becoming as a person today might actually be more important than what you do later as an adult. The kind of person you are becoming today just might be more important than the title or positions you hold as an adult. And so the question you might ask yourself today is what kind of person am I becoming? What kind of character is being formed in me? That's the first stage. Well, really the first and second. That's character formation. Then we enter into ministry formation. So let me speak to the 30 and 40-year-olds for a minute. 34-year-olds own it. Hands, come on, 34-year-olds, 30s, 40s. Maybe early 50s. You can still, if you're 50, 51, you can pretend you're 40 still. I will. Uh, So here we go. You know what it's like to be in your 30s and 40s? I, I is one, so here's what it's like. It feels like life has you by the scruff of the neck, right? Like, I mean, you've got no, you've got like that much margin, actually like that much margin. You've got negative margin. Can you have a negative margin? I have a negative margin. Between diapers and bills and carpool and college apps and aging parents and your own career and just trying to have a relationship with your spouse, there is barely time to sleep. There is no time left for life. But what if God really has given you gifts and abilities that he wants you to use for his kingdom work? What if that's actually true? What if there's actually more to life than just bills and work and sleep and getting up and doing it all over again? You see, the question that Daniel might invite you to reflect on is what are you learning about yourself in this season? And what is it that really matters most to you? All right, 30s and 40-year-olds feel that? Now, lastly, third group, finally, boomers. Boomers, you guys are all born 65 or before meaning 1965, 1965, boomers shoot them up. And if you're in your early fifties, you can count. You're kind of like an X or about to be a boomer. Almost. You get this, right? Here, here's what if, what if Dr. Clinton is actually right? I mean, just, just consider this for a minute. What if everything in your life up until now has been preparation for what comes next? What if that's actually true? I know it sounds crazy, I mean, after all, your generation is the one who gave us the song, I hope I die before I get old, right? Y'all remember? Here's the truth. You haven't died yet, (laughs) which must mean there is yet some purpose for you in this world. You see, we live in a very strange and foreign land. We live in a kind of Babylon today, and you know what God our Babylon worships? It worships at the altar of youth. Youth is God in our culture. We love to tell stories of young people and their raging fast-track success. But the Bible tells a different story. The Bible doesn't think that youth is the end-all, be-all. The Bible doesn't think that youth is king. The Bible thinks that there is wisdom and experience and value to old age like nothing else. In God's economy, there is nothing, nothing more valuable, nothing more honored, nothing more significant than the wisdom and influence of age. And so, 55-plusers, y'all ready? And those about to be? Here's what Daniel would say to you. You are a treasure trove of experience and wisdom and knowledge and gifts. And besides all that, guess what else you have? Time! You've got time like you've never had before. You're no longer taking care of the babies. You're no longer in that life stage. And what if... What if God's most important work in your life is yet to come? What if your greatest contribution is still in front of you? Let's get back to Daniel, huh? You know, the interesting thing that Daniel leaves us with in this chapter is it kind of concerns this whole fourth quarter faith thing is is the end of the story. Do you all remember how the story ends? So Daniel's going to get taken. He's thrown in with the lions. Uh, There's a giant rock that's rolled in in front of the cave, and and the king takes his ring and some wax, and and it's sealed shut, and and the king puts his emblem on there, And, and the text is so pointed. It says, so that Daniel's condition cannot be changed. Daniel's fate is sealed. It's fourth quarter. For all intents and purposes, it looks like it's game over. But one of Daniel's great contributions to us today, to Christians throughout the century, is a reminder that it does not matter how dark or how few seconds there are left, the game is not over until it's over. And God shows up in the fourth quarter in Daniel's life, and we see some fascinating parallels. Because not only does Daniel survive, not only does God rescue him from the lion's den, but Daniel's life points forward 500 years later to another Jew, who would also pray three times on his knees in a garden, who would also be laid in a cave, who would also have a stone rolled over the mouth, his fate sealed, whom everyone else would leave for dead except that our God is a God of fourth quarters and the game is not over until he says it's over. And so today, my friend, I don't know what you're facing. Maybe it's the the hopelessness and discouragement of a fourth quarter. Maybe today you feel like, you know what, my best years are behind me. But what if... What if God still has your greatest work in front of you? Or maybe like Daniel, your face in the situation just feels beyond your power and it feels dark and hopeless. And it's so dark, you don't even know how many lions are there. And your only hope, your only hope is this God who can save. My friend, it's not over until it's over. We worship. We serve a God of the fourth quarter. And how might he be inviting you to trust him today what might he want to be doing in your life right here and right now can we pray